I'm uh, changing things up a little bit and not doing a scripture reading before this one because we're covering stuff in about six chapters. This morning, uh, we're going to continue kind of a story-based approach through a pretty big chunk of the book of Jeremiah. We're looking at, we're in the midstream here of looking at three approaches to the Word of God and three different outcomes. Last time, we looked at Jehoiakim and the disaster of fearlessly discarding the Word of God. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at Zedekiah, and he is really, among the kings of Judah, he's the central character in the book of Jeremiah. There's a lot more space devoted to him than to any of the other kings. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but just a synopsis of what we're going to see with Jeremiah is the calamity of expecting God's help while ignoring God's Word. And then... Finally, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Jeremiah and the great cost and greater blessing of faithfully heeding and proclaiming the Word of God. Now, first thing I want to do this morning is kind of, again, give you a little bit of historical context uh, so that you'll see where this person, Zedekiah, fits in the mix. Josiah was the last godly king and by far the best king to rule over Judah after King David. After Josiah died, the people of Judah anointed his his 23-year-old son Jehoahaz to be king of Judah in his place. The rule of Jehoahaz lasted a grand total of three months. Pharaoh Necho, who was king of Egypt, arrested and imprisoned Jehoahaz and eventually brought him to Egypt where he died. You'll find that in 2 Kings chapter 23. Pharaoh Necho then appointed Jehoiakim, another of the three sons of Josiah, to rule over Judah. Jehoiakim ruled in Judah for 11 years. He was the king that we considered last week who burned up the scroll containing the word of God that God had spoken to Jehoiakim and to all of Judah through the prophet Jeremiah. He burned it up. He despised God's Word. Around that time, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was getting the upper hand militarily in the region. He had already conquered the kingdom of Assyria. He was was pursuing all the other surrounding nations, including the region of Judah. And according to uh, 2 Kings 24, Jehoiakim, recognizing what was going on, submitted himself to King Nebuchadnezzar for about three years. Then Jehoiakim inexplicably turned and decided to rebel against this exceedingly powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar thus arrested King Jehoiakim and took him in chains into captivity. Now, based on what we've already seen in the book of Jeremiah, When Jehoiakim died in captivity, I believe Nebuchadnezzar brought his body back and dropped it outside the gates of Jerusalem to rot because that's what God said was going to happen to Jehoiakim, that he would be consumed by birds and worms outside the city. After arresting Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar appointed Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah, to reign as his puppet king over Judah in the city of Jerusalem. Jeconiah's reign 
on the throne of David lasted exactly ten days longer than Jehoahaz's reign. It lasted three months and ten days. And then Nebuchadnezzar took Jeconiah into captivity in Babylon. Apparently he was also not a very cooperative subject. That brings us then to Zedekiah, the last of all of the kings of Judah until you get to the, to the one who had the words King of the Jews tacked to his cross. Zedekiah was 20, 21 years old when he became king of Judah and he ruled over Judah for 11 years. Zedekiah, again, was one of the three sons of the good King Josiah. Like his two brothers, Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Even though God kept telling him through his faithful prophet Jeremiah that he was supposed to submit to Nebuchadnezzar because God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to act as his instrument to judge his own people, Judah. If Nebuchadnezzar had not had other distractions to deal with, other aggressive nations, I can guarantee you that Zedekiah's reign would have been a lot shorter than 11 years. But uh, as it happened, there were distractions, and we'll talk uh, for Nebuchadnezzar. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go. The first thing that we're going to see is Zedekiah's very extensive pattern of double-mindedness toward God's word and God's messenger. <clears throat> there's there's a, a side to his dealings with the prophet Jeremiah that looks really good, and then. Invariably, it goes from looking really good to being really bad. In order to get a reasonably good picture of this double-mindedness, again, I'm going to walk through several events and conversations involving Jeremiah and Zedekiah. And I've got a lot of ground to cover, so depending on how you learn, it might be easier for you to just listen. This is really a story that we're following through these these um, chapters. In chapter 21, Zedekiah asks to hear from Yahweh. Well, sort of. <laughs> In the opening paragraph of the book of Jeremiah, the prophet lays out the historical span of his work as God's messenger. He says that the word of Yahweh came to him, to Jeremiah, starting in the days of Josiah and ending in the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem. And he's talking about until the city fell into the hands of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. After that little brief mention in the first paragraph of the book, Zedekiah is not mentioned again until chapter 21. In that chapter, things between Zedekiah and God start out looking pretty good. Zedekiah sends some of his officials and priests uh, to go talk to the prophet Jeremiah, and they bring to Jeremiah what sounds like a good and godly request. They say in Jeremiah 21.2, Please inquire of Yahweh on our behalf. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps Yahweh will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts so that the enemy will withdraw from us. That's, that's a pretty reasonable request. And he's going to the right person with that request. But God's answer isn't what Zedekiah wanted to hear. 
Because God knew Zedekiah's heart. Listen as I read just part of that answer, starting in 21.3. Jeremiah said to these emissaries of Zedekiah, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands, with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall. In case there's any confusion, the Chaldeans were simply the the people of of the region of Babylon. And so the Chaldean army is the army under Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dominion. And I will gather them, I will gather that army into the center of this city, Jerusalem. And then verse 5 is very important. I myself will war against you, Zedekiah. With an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. There's an enemy you don't want. I will also strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They will die of a great pestilence. Then afterward, declares the Lord, I will give over Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people, even those who survive in this city from the pestilence, the sword, and the famine, I will give them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their foes, and into the hand of those who seek their lives, and he will strike them down with the edge of the sword. He will not spare them nor have pity or compassion. It's not the answer Zedekiah was looking for. And then to the people, God says, verse 8, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who dwells in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live, and he will have his own life as booty. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares Yahweh. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. So the way of death is stay in the city. Resist Nebuchadnezzar. The way of life is don't resist Nebuchadnezzar. Submit to him because I'm the one who sent him. Give yourselves up and go away into captivity. God's will and God's warning is crystal clear. In chapter 27, God restates the same warnings to Zedekiah through Jeremiah. He simply again says, in effect, that if Zedekiah would submit to God's corrective judgment at the hands of his servant Nebuchadnezzar, he and all the Judahites that remained in Jerusalem would live and God would take care of them. Just think about that for a minute. If they would give up, not one single life among the people in the city of Jerusalem would have been lost. But if not, God would punish them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence until he destroyed Judah and Jerusalem by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In spite of such crystal clear and repeated warnings and promises from God, Zedekiah persists in rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king in the known world at that time. A king who had conquered great and mighty nations with powerful armies. You know what was left in the city of Jerusalem at this point? The riffraff, as Nebuchadnezzar saw it. He had already taken away the book of Daniel, the, the three young men of royal blood, 
And all those who went with them, that was, that was before this. That was like 10 years earlier that they were taken into captivity. All of the important and useful people, as Nebuchadnezzar saw it, had already been taken. What was left in the city was the riffraff. And they're resisting the most powerful military leader in the known world. And Zedekiah's, he's got his, He's got his dander up and he says, I'm going to be the hero of Jerusalem. I'm going to protect the temple of Yahweh. I'm going to preserve the city of David. And he sticks to his guns, even though God told him not to. So he battens down the hatches of the city of Jerusalem and refuses to submit. Even when Nebuchadnezzar's army lays siege and they're tearing down the walls of the city. In chapter 34, Jeremiah uh, gives repentance a try. Well, sort of. Things get really interesting in that chapter. God again tells Jeremiah to prophesy against Zedekiah, king of Judah, and against all the Judahites under his authority. God restates his decree that he's about to give the king and the people of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells Zedekiah that he will personally be given into Nebuchadnezzar's hand and will see him eye to eye and meet him face to face. Remember that wording. Then in verse 4, God tells Zedekiah something unexpected. He says to him, Yet hear the word of Yahweh, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You will not die by the sword. You will die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, then the former kings, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you and they will lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares Yahweh. Now contrast that, that declaration with what God said to Zedekiah's brother Jehoiakim in chapter 22. He said, verses 18 and 19, Therefore, thus says Yahweh in regard to Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, sister. They will not lament for him, alas, for the master, or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. I think it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that God is treating Zedekiah more kindly than he treated his brother Jehoiakim. Right after God's decree in Zechariah 34 that Zedekiah's life would be spared, that he would die in peace, his death would be mourned, Jeremiah records another episode that again starts out looking really good. King Zedekiah makes a covenant with all the people in Judah and in Jerusalem to proclaim release to their Hebrew slaves, to let all of their Hebrew slaves go back to their own families just like God commanded in the law. God God had given the command in the sabbatical years, every seventh year, any Jew who who had come to have another Jew as a servant would release that servant and he could go back home to his own property, to his own family. And that was one of the many ways that God asserted his exclusive ownership of both the people and the land. It was a huge thing to God. So 
Verse 8, King Zedekiah makes this covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them that each man should set free his male slave and each man his female slave, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew his brother, in bondage. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into that covenant, that each man should set his slaves free. They obeyed. They set them free. It's really good, right? Looks like Zedekiah is finally getting it. Well, and, 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 I, and by the way, I should add that God says it's right. Uh, just real quick, in verse 15 of chapter 4, God says to Zedekiah, you turned and you did what was right in my sight. Each man proclaiming release to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. See, God is commending Zedekiah. But here's the rub. Soon after releasing their Hebrew slaves, the Judahites who had entered into this good covenant, quote, turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free. In chapter 37, we find out why. Why the Judahites reneged on their commitment to release these Hebrew slaves. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar had lifted the siege against the city and had brought his troops back home. And the reason was because Egypt was doing some saber rattling. Egypt was gathering their army back together and they, and Pharaoh of Egypt had essentially declared that he was gonna, he was gonna go and claim Palestine for himself. He was going to come to the aid of Judah. <laughs> you talk about an ulterior motive. Every time Israel or Judah looked to Egypt for help, that was catastrophic. Anyway, so the Egyptians start, start rattling their sabers, and Nebuchadnezzar, he's dealing with some other aggressive nations around him, and it's not quite time for him to assert his dominion over Egypt. You know, he's not, he's not quite ready to put them down. So he pulls the troops out. Half time. And, <laughs> and because he did so, the inhabitants of the city renege on the covenant. You see what happens. When the Babylonian army was just outside the city gates tearing down the walls of the city, Zedekiah and the Judahites finally got serious about doing things God's way. You've heard of foxhole conversions, right? God has used the fear of imminent death and of eternal death to draw many a soul to faith in Him. But foxhole conversions are only good if they stick. And this one didn't. As soon as Zedekiah and the people realized that the threat had abated, all of a sudden their zeal for doing things God's way vanished. They were treating God like some kind of cosmic vending machine. God, (laughs) we'll do things your way as long as you give us what we need. And we get to define what we need. But when we don't need you anymore, back to status quo. We'll talk about that a little more later. In chapter 37, as that chapter continues to unveil, King Zedekiah again sends emissaries to Jeremiah, and he asked, they are to ask him, saying, 
please pray to Yahweh, our God, on our behalf. That's a good thing, right? But yet again, the answer that Zedekiah receives from Jeremiah isn't what he wants to hear. Verse 7, chapter 37, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, thus you are to say, you emissaries, thus you are to say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will also return and they will fight against this city and they will capture it and burn it with fire. Just like I have said over and over. Thus says Yahweh, do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go. For even if you had, this is great, even if you had defeated the entire army of the Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would still rise up and burn this city with fire. Ouch. God's saying, Zedekiah, you need, some, you need to understand something. It isn't the Chaldeans that you should be worried about. If you persist to refuse in submitting to them, you're refusing to submit to me. Even if all of their soldiers were laying in their tents wounded, barely able to sit up, they would rise up and burn this city down. Because I'm the one who's sending that's not an enemy that you want. Around this time, Jeremiah goes outside the city into the territory of the tribe of Benjamin to take possession of a piece of property. A Benjamite official arrests Jeremiah and accuses him of being a traitor to his own people because of what he's been prophesying. Jeremiah is beaten and then he's locked up in a lovely place that is literally translated the house of the pit. Verse 16 says Jeremiah stayed there many days. When Zedekiah finds out about Jeremiah being thrown into this pit, he rescues Jeremiah from the pit and brings him to his palace. That's good, right? Well, at the palace, Zedekiah comes to Jeremiah in secret. The king of Judah comes to this prophet in secret. And he asks him, he says, is there a word from Yahweh? He's nothing if not persistent. Jeremiah says, yes, there is. Here's what God says to you, Zedekiah. You ready for it? You will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. Period. That's verse 17. And then Jeremiah pleads with Zedekiah not to throw him back in the pit he was just in because he knows that he'll die. He'll die in that pit. Zedekiah sends Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse inside the king's palace and he orders that he receive a loaf of bread each day. And there's a little add-on in that passage that says that went on until all the bread in the city was gone. There is one little episode where that gets where Jeremiah's not in that in that location but when it all shakes out that's where he ends up okay so king zedekiah kept jeremiah from dying in that hole in the ground but he didn't give him his freedom 
The amazing thing in chapter 37 is that Zedekiah keeps coming back to Jeremiah, asking him to pray on his behalf, asking him if the Word of God might have turned from doom to deliverance. (laughs) Zedekiah is consulting with Jeremiah in secret. He clearly does not want anyone to know that he's talking with this prophet of doom instead of with all the prophets that keep telling him that everything's going to be fine. And he doesn't want anyone to know that he's protecting Jeremiah. But he is in fact doing both. He's seeking the Word of God from Jeremiah and he's protecting Jeremiah. But he just never quite gets both feet into that. At some level, Zedekiah seems to get the fact that Jeremiah is the only one around who's actually speaking truth to him. But he keeps holding out for an adjustment to that truth. (laughs) Because it's not what he wants to hear. In chapter 38, King Zedekiah rescues God's messenger again. Well, sort of. Some of the royal officials come to the king and they demand that he let them deal very harshly with Jeremiah because of all all of his oracles of destruction against the city and the people. Publicly, Zedekiah wants to appear to be firm-fisted with Jeremiah, so he turns Jeremiah over to these wicked men and tells them they can do what they want with him. I don't know what he expected, but but what they did is <laughs> they took Jeremiah and they lowered him by ropes into a really deep cistern that, quote, has no water but only mud. Verse 6 says Jeremiah sank into the mud. A servant from the king's palace, a man named Ebed-Melech, which it literally in Hebrew is, uh, translates servant of the king, comes to Zedekiah and pleads with him to rescue Jeremiah from this death pit. He says to Zedekiah in chapter 38, verse 9, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the cistern, and he's going to die right where he is because of the famine, for there is no more bread in this city. Zedekiah authorizes Ebed-Melech to rescue Jeremiah, just as he requested. Ebed-Melech gathers 30 men who are under his authority. Now that tells me that Ebed-Melech is the chief steward in the palace. He's the chief of the servants. Because he's got 30 men that he can just go grab to help him out. It doesn't take 30 men to pull a guy out of a pit. So I think he took the 30 men so that if there was any resistance, he could deal with it. The men lowered down ropes and garments for Jeremiah to put under his arms and they pulled Jeremiah up from this very deep pit and they bring him back to the court of the guardhouse at the palace where he then stays until the city falls. Once again, in the court of the guardhouse, Zedekiah meets with Jeremiah in secret. And once again, he asks Jeremiah for a good word from the Lord. (laughs) And once again, the word he gets through Jeremiah is the same as it's been all along. Give up, give yourself over to the officers of the king of Babylon and you'll get to live in the city and not be destroyed. Or don't, and you'll be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem will be on your hands. Zedekiah's answer is astonishing. He tells Jeremiah he's afraid of the Jews. 
He's afraid they're going to hand, that he's afraid that the Chaldeans will, if he gives up, if he gives himself over to the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans are going to hand him over to the people of the city. And they will, quote, abuse me. And why would that be? Put yourself in the shoes of somebody in the city for a minute. The, an 18 month siege is well underway. Everybody in the city knows who's going to win. The army that's tearing down the walls is, is the greatest mili- military power known to man at that point. They have already taken all the great military minds and wealth and royalty from your kingdom in previous raids. All that's left inside your city is the riffraff that they left behind. The food supply has been cut off for months. In order to cling as the king, King Zedekiah, in order to cling to his fairy tale dream of saving the great city and restoring the kingdom to great power and prestige, he has allowed all the people inside the city to slowly starve to death. The famine is becoming so severe that people are resorting to cannibalism and they are cooking what little food they can find over fires that are made from their own dung. Is it any wonder that Zedekiah was worried about being handed over to the people of his own city? Jeremiah tells Zedekiah on God's behalf that the Chaldeans will not hand him over to his own people, that God will take care of him and it will go well with him and he will live if he simply does what God has repeatedly commanded him to do. It's not complicated. And then, it's an interesting passage, God tells Zedekiah, that the women who had been serving in his palace were going to mock him. They would declare that while Zedekiah, this is fascinating, while Zedekiah's feet were, quote, sunk in the mire, his smooth-talking prophets who had always told him what he wanted to hear, who had told him what he kept pleading with Jeremiah to tell him, those prophets, those false prophets were going to do the opposite of what They had counseled Zedekiah to do. They were going to, at the last minute, they were going to give up and surrender to the Chaldeans so it would be better with them than it would be with the king. The women were going to mock Zedekiah publicly saying these things. After Jeremiah reveals this final word, and by the way, next week I'm going to talk more about this feet sunk in the mire, this whole thing about waterless cisterns and mud. When we get to Jeremiah, we'll talk more about that. It's fascinating how that theme just progresses through the whole book. After Jeremiah reveals this final word from God to Zedekiah, the king, Zedekiah promises to protect Jeremiah as long as Jeremiah doesn't tell anyone that they have this conversation. He's still more worried about the people than he is about God. You know anybody like that? Zedekiah keeps coming back to the only man in his kingdom who has relentlessly told him what God says. But he can't bring himself to submit to that truth. He's still waiting for the story to change. For God to play nice. And let things go the way Zedekiah wants them to go. But God's Word is just as it has been from the very beginning. Because God doesn't change. The outcome for Zedekiah, Jerusalem, and Judah. Finally, chapter 39, every word that Jeremiah has spoken to King Zedekiah on behalf of God 
and to the kings before him is vindicated. Jerusalem, the city of the great king, falls just as God said it would through Jeremiah. Zedekiah is taken in bonds to meet with Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye and face to face, exactly as God said would happen through Jeremiah. And that prophecy that that prophecy that uh, <laughs> that Zedekiah would would meet with Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye takes on a very sobering meaning in its fulfillment. Because Nebuchadnezzar slays Zedekiah's sons, quote, before his eyes. And then he puts out the eyes of Zedekiah. So the last thing when he meets with Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye, the last thing he gets to see is the execution of his sons and the king who did it. The king that he decided he could defeat. And then Nebuchadnezzar binds him in fetters and carries him away into captivity to Babylon. The king's palace, the houses of all the people of Jerusalem are burned to the ground. The walls of the city are reduced to rubble. The great temple of King Solomon that had been repaired by Zedekiah's father, Josiah, who restored the worship of Yahweh in the land, is destroyed, reduced to rubble. And the holy objects of the temple are carted off as spoils of the Babylonian victory over this rebellious King Zedekiah. All of the palace officials and servants of Zedekiah, of of all of those officials and, and servants that served in his palace, only one is not given over into the hands of the Babylonians, and his name is Ebed-Melech. The Ethiopian eunuch who had put his own life on the line to implore the king to let him rescue Jeremiah from the waterless, mud-filled cistern in which he had been left to starve to death. In the last verse of chapter 38, Jeremiah brings the word of Yahweh, the God of armies, to Ebed-Melech, this slave. And he says to him, this is the last verse of chapter 38. I will certainly rescue you, Ebed-Melech, and you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as booty because you have trusted in me. Because you have trusted in me, declares Yahweh. The king of Judah who asked for and heard time after time the word of Yahweh, is forced to watch his own sons executed, then he's blinded and carried away in bonds to finish out life as a prisoner in a strange land. At the same time, that same king's slave, whose highest position in life had been to manage other slaves in the king's household, is protected and rescued from the hand of the most powerful king in the known world by Yahweh, the God of armies. Who should Zedekiah have feared? The one great difference that God points out between those two men is that the first man heard and ignored God's Word and the second man heard and believed God's Word. There are many lessons that we can learn from this this amazing flow of events. First, whom you fear will determine how you live. At some level, I believe Zedekiah feared Yahweh. He kept seeking out Jeremiah to pray for him, to tell him what Yahweh had to say, even though it was never what he wanted to hear. But Zedekiah's fear of not getting what he was convinced that he and Judah needed was greater than his fear of God 
and of God's Word. What he thought was needed had a higher priority than what God declared should be and would be. How many of us do that at some level? How many of our prayers are filled with mountains of demands, but mostly devoid of praise and adoration and submission to the God of all that exists? When God doesn't deliver what we ask for just the way we think it should be delivered, do we turn our attention and our affection away from Him? Or do we cling to Him, confessing that He knows far better what we need than we will ever know? In Psalm 139, David says, he says that God's knowledge of Him is too wonderful for Him. You know what that means? That means that God knows Him better than He will ever possibly know Himself. God knows what He needs far better than He will ever know. Are we willing to submit to God even if He calls us to live faithfully as an exiled people in a land that doesn't speak our language and doesn't know or care about God and His ways? And when I say doesn't speak our language, I don't mean English or Spanish. I mean the truth of God. That's how it's been for the church in many parts of the world for many generations. And I don't know, but it's, it's looking more and more to me like that's what God is requiring of His church in America. That we live as an exiled people in a strange place that doesn't speak our language and doesn't know God. Will we listen to God and fear God and trust God the way Ebed Melech did so that our actions will be determined by God the way His were? Or will we fear and trust ourselves and other fearsome men so that our actions are determined by those fears instead? Make no mistake, beloved, whoever we believe has the power to control our well-being for good or bad, in other words, whoever we fear, That's who will determine how we live. Until we fear only God, our fear is misplaced and our lives are in terrible disarray. The real test of our righteous fear of God is how we respond when the things He requires of us don't match up with what we think they should be and look really scary. No matter how dark things get, God's Word is always, always true. And our greatest good is always, always found in trusting and submitting to that Word. When God tells us things that are completely counterintuitive, things that that go completely against everything that our experience tells us should be true, everything that feels safe, beloved, we know where truth and life and peace lie. In trusting and humbly submitting to the Word of God. He does not lie. I may be wrong about this, but I suspect that the reason that God declared a a kinder outcome to Zedekiah's life than to Jehoiakim's life is because there was some part of Zedekiah's heart that was right before him. You and I may not be quite as flaky in our responses to God as Zedekiah was, at least hopefully not a lot of the time. Hopefully our acts of obedience to God are grounded in better motives 
than Zedekiah's manipulative and half-hearted effort to free the Hebrew slaves in Judah. But our motives for doing things God's way are probably never 100% pure, right? There's a dear, a dear missionary that many of us know well who said that. He said, my motives are never pure. But when I want to do something that God says should be done, I go for it because it couldn't have come from me. Sometimes the godly part of our motivation has the upper hand. Sometimes the ungodly part does. But if any part of our motivation for ordering our lives on God's terms is godly, that part is blessed by God. And, and we need God to sort out which is which so He can keep moving us in the right direction. Philippians 2.13 says that God is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But we're not very good at diagnosing our own hearts. And so again, in Psalm 139, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He hands over to God that process of searching and trying and revealing what's in his own heart. Because God knows him better than he does. You and I need to be doing that. We need to be prayerfully laying our hearts at God's feet and saying, God, move me toward Christ. Because I'm not going to be the one that gets that done. Shepherds need to listen to God. Leaders among God's people have a solemn and sacred responsibility to continually seek God's Word and to submit to it. Of course, every child of God has that responsibility, but there is no question that those to whom God has entrusted oversight among His people are held to the highest of standards. God brings to my mind almost daily James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. God gives each of us the task of shepherding somebody at some point in our lives. And that task is a sacred trust from God. And in order to treat it as sacred, we must listen to what God says, believe it, and submit to it. Everything that we do matters. What we do in secret is as important as what we do in public. Zedekiah tried to control who knew about his conversations with Jeremiah and his responses to God's Word as if he could control the impact of those conversations and responses by controlling which human beings knew about them. But every word that Zedekiah heard from God and from men and every response that he gave to that Word of God impacted all of Judah. If you think that applies only to leaders, go read Joshua chapter 6 about the man named Achan. Texans pronounce it Achan. I'm from Texas. Achan is the guy who secretly took some of the treasures from Israel's conquest of the city of Jericho that were supposed to be dedicated to Yahweh and he hid them in a secret spot under his tent. He thought, hmm, it's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody would have ever known who Achan was. He was just a guy. But because of his secret sin, God caused Israel to be defeated at the next battle, the battle of Ai. 36 men died that day 
because of Achan's secret sin. And then God found him out. And his whole family was, was killed. How much more true is this principle for us who are part of the body of Christ? You and I, we talked about that some this morning in the worship, you and I are not our own. Ever. We have been bought at the priceless cost of the blood of Jesus and we have been indwelled by His Holy Spirit and we have brought in, been brought into eternal union with Jesus Christ together with all of His people. It's one union. And we have no identity that exists in isolation from Christ or in isolation from one another. Nothing that we do ever affects only us. Even if you're in a in a dark room with a locked door, nothing that we do ever affects only us because we have been brought into union with Christ together with each other. There's no such thing as a victimless crime and there is no such thing as victimless sin. Finally, never underestimate the usefulness of your faith in God. Ebed Melech was a house steward a slave in the palace of Zedekiah. Whatever his mother named him had become replaced with his job description, servant of the king. The only people of lower rank in his sphere of influence were other slaves under his authority. But Ebed Melech's trust in Yahweh saved the life of one of the most influential prophets in the history of the world. The fact that you and I today get to behold God through the words that God gave Jeremiah may very well have been brought about through the faith and faithfulness of that slave. Never underestimate the usefulness of your trust in God or of the obedience that that trust causes in you. Loving Father, pray that we'll take these things to heart. There's a lot here. I know I've missed a lot, but man, this is amazing. And this man Zedekiah, is, he is laid bare before us so that we'll know things that we need to know because that's what Your Word does. Father, we pray that You'd pierce our hearts, that You'd make us sensitive to all the things that You're teaching us. And, and we pray above all, Father, that You would humble us before You to listen to You to fall down at Your feet and to, and to seek Your Word and to trust Your Word and to submit to Your Word and to obey Your Word. And Father, that You would cause us to do so with delight because You have made us the objects of Your eternal grace in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.